This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is a treat for me this week. I thank you for joining us. You know, sometimes you can just tell almost immediately when you meet someone that there's just something different about that person. That is the case. That was the case with our guest this week. I mean, you could tell he was smart, but not because he wanted to tell you how smart he was. He was usually either the last to speak or towards the last. And you know what it's like when you're around a bunch of politicians. They can't wait to give you their uh, perspective, their opinion. But this guy usually went last. And then what he said made the most sense. So it's really no surprise that he was kind of plucked out of the house to do two of the more important jobs our country has. And he probably is too modest to say this. I, I'm convinced he passed up an almost sure thing in the U.S. Senate. Uh, so he's an unusual guy. His name is Mike Pompeo, and he is, uh, we're going to talk about some of the other things he is. The most recent thing he is, is an incredibly successful author of a new book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. With that, Secretary, you got a thousand titles, so let's go with Secretary Mike Pompeo. How are you? Trey, I'm good. Let's go with Mike. We're too good of friends to do anything different from that. I, I know, but this is what I say to my doctor friends. It, it took you about 12 years to get the title doctor. I'm not going to dismiss that by calling you by your first name on the golf course. I mean, God knows how long it took you to become the secretary of the state. I, I want to ask you, and this is going to be weird, and you do touch on it in your book. And, and actually, I mean, I care about your professional accomplishments. I'm more interested in how people became what they are and how they got where they are. You touch upon your upbringing in your book. Uh, you write some very, I thought, warm stories. So here's my question. Tell us what a young Mike Pompeo was like. Oh, Trey, it was. Uh, so I grew up in Santa Ana, California, in Orange County. Uh, Orange County, California was different than it is today. It was a, a great place. My my parents, my my father worked at a company that made fasteners, nuts and bolts. Uh, my mother stayed at home for most of our upbringing. But when I went to high school, she went to work in a manufacturing company, too. Uh, neither of them graduated from college. But man, they were determined we were going to have lives of hard work and commitment. They were tough in that way, but loving too. I have an older sister, younger brother, about a year and a half apart. And uh, uh, we were taught, you better study hard, you better work hard. And if you do those things, good things will happen most days. I was a high school basketball player, all of 5'10", 5'11". I was a power forward. I wasn't very good, um, but I, I enjoyed the heck out of that too. All right. So if you can get in West Point, you can get in almost any other school too. So why West Point? Was that like always what you wanted to do? I mean, you could have probably gone wherever you wanted to. 
I had a, it was a pretty simple upbringing. Uh, my, my backup school was the University of California, Irvine. I stay at home and I wanted to be an engineer. So I was looking at schools that had good engineering programs and then kind of stumbled onto West Point. I'd watched Army Navy games with my dad, but it wasn't something I had dreamed of all my life. But the more I learned, it just looked like a place where a kid could get a chance, right? I was a good student. And I thought, boy, if I go there and work hard, maybe I can do okay there too. Uh, and it turned out it was every bit of that. It was uh, it taught me an awful lot about how to listen and how to learn and a little bit about how to lead as well. Now, I had some guys from my high school that were there when you were there. And legend has it. I didn't know they ranked. I mean, I figure if you're at West Point or Annapolis, everybody is like equally smart. So there's no sense in ranking them. They keep trying to tell me you finish like either at the top of the class or near the top of the class. So this is like doing yeah. really well among nothing but smart people. <laughs> you know, Trey, it's funny. I'll be introduced to different things. I'll say Mike Pompeo graduated first in his class. And if any of your buddies were there, they would roll their eyes. And say, For goodness gracious, you've been riding that horse 40 years now, Mike. <laughs> you know, get, get on with it. Stop. Stop the madness. It was a great place where uh, I made my lifetime friend who have been around me now coming on four decades and uh, had this incredible chance to serve in the army following that with some great young soldiers. And I, I wouldn't trade the, those moments for the world. All right. One part of your book that I almost laughed out loud. So when I think of you, I mean, not only did you graduate West Point, successful businessman, member of the house, uh, plucked out of the house to be the CIA director, you wow your boss and your colleagues there. So they pick you to be secretary of the state. And yet I'm reading about a Mike Pompeo that at one point in life was impatient, that he didn't think he was doing enough quick enough. And I can't reconcile those <laughs> two. I mean, any one of the jobs you've had for people that would be a crowning achievement in life. I mean, I can think of four things you've done that people <laughs> would say, okay, that's the pinnacle of life. And yet, you were impatient? You didn't think you were moving quickly enough? I don't know that it was all of that. It's always been the case that I appreciated how much the Lord had given me and how lucky I was to be here. And I'd cut a lot of breaks in my life, some of which happened because you're there and working hard, but a lot of which you know this, Trey, uh, just right time and the Lord striking. I mean, who who dreams that I'm going to get to serve on the Benghazi committee with you and spend more time with you for a, a year or so than I did with my wife? For goodness sake, uh, right? Now, all of these things. That was penance. <laughs> that was punishment, Mike. That was, that was not a reward. Oh, all, all of these things accumulate, right, Trey? You uh, from from the simple things in your life to the fact that I came across Susan and married her, they all just kind of build. And I've been pretty blessed. And so, if there was impatience, it was a desire to kind of how do you find a place where you can give back and serve and do good, not just not just for America in the highest sense, but for Nick, our son, for your family, for your community, your church, all of those things. It's always been an important part of my life. We're going to take a quick break. More of my interview with Secretary Mike Pompeo next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. All right. Your uh, modesty will probably deflect from this. You will remember it differently from the way I remember it. I could have sworn they really, really, really wanted you to run for the United States Senate in Kansas. I, I Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I could have sworn they really, really wanted you to do it. And you were getting a lot of pressure to do it. And yet that's not what you opted to do for yourself. M- most people don't turn that down. Yeah. Um and, and and I'm sure you're going to say it would have been a competitive primary. There are no guarantees. I know you're going to say all that stuff, but let's just assume I'm right. And that it was a pretty clear path to U.S. Senate. Yet you saw something different for your life. How did you go about giving it analysis, but ultimately concluding it wasn't right for you? Sure, this will make sense for you. By the way, no, I would have crushed it in Kansas. Nobody would have challenged me. I would have walked away with it. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been a layup. Uh, We've all been around too long to know that's not true. In the end, I had uh, another year and a half. I was hoping maybe President Trump would get reelected even more. Uh, And I was America's Secretary of State. Who who gets to do that? Uh, I'd, I'd also, I'd been in Congress, Trey. You've experienced this too. I felt like I had sort of done the things that I could do there. Uh, And so, when you get this chance to be on the world stage trying to deliver the American people to walk away from that, when there was lots of pressure to do so, people saying, get out, your reputation is intact, go. It just didn't make any sense for Susan and me. It's it's too bad. Um, it would have given us a chance to be back home, go back to Kansas. But we ultimately decided that the right place for us was to stay, finish out uh, our time as Secretary of State until President Trump fired me. Well, P.S., that, that never happened. Uh, the firing part never happened. All right. To the naked eye, being the CIA director and being the secretary of state require vastly different skill sets. And yet you did both. So did you enjoy one job more than the other? Did one require uh, more, uh, I don't want to say learning, but I mean, you served on the House Intelligence Committee. So I'm assuming CIA thing came not terribly difficult for you. Um, Contrast those two jobs. And especially in light of the title of your book, Loving America is One Thing never giving an inch. Most diplomats would not say never give an inch. So work all that in for me. I'll do my best. Uh, Very different jobs, for sure. Very different institutions, organizations, for sure. The CIA felt good to me. It felt normal. I kind of knew that. Uh, I was comfortable there. A lot of veterans, folks who'd served in the military, go to work as CIA officers. Uh, You're not in public. You get to fly around the world and there's no media traveling with you. It is a very internally focused mission set. And there's a lot of clarity. You're the facts and data guy. Just deliver good intelligence for the president and for the secretary of defense and secretary of state so they can make the tough decisions in the heat of the moment. Uh, So that was really fun. Uh, you get to watch all the cool stuff, all the spy movie stuff. You go, wow, that's actually true. So uh, that piece of it was just absolutely lovely. And it was an institution that sort of fit me like a glove. And so I was happier than heck there. And then the president said, I got another idea. State Department was very different. Uh, deeply public, Trey. Uh, not not something that I relish doing combat with the media. Uh, they were all over us. You travel in an airplane where there's 
15 media folks in the back of the airplane, for goodness sake. Uh, but second, it was an institution of such scale and scope and three unions and so far left of center that getting it to conform to what President Trump and I were trying to do was really, really, really hard. We were trying to break some glass, Trey. Uh, the foreign policy establishment, it's not even left or right. It's not political. It's just they have this thesis, this consensus, this inertia. And we were different cast of characters, to be sure. And so that was a, a tough leadership challenge as well. Um, I, I loved it, too, though, because um, I got a chance to try and translate the idea. President Trump had this idea of America first to try and put some real uh, intellectual heft behind it. And then a pragmatic, practical practitioner's effort to actually deliver that and that's what I write about a lot in the book. Uh, one thing to go to school and study balance of power theory. Another thing to sit across the table from Xi Jinping and try to deliver good outcomes for the American people as an actual practitioner. Uh, tough, tough place at the State Department. I'm not sure I left it better than I found it, but we worked our tail off. You uh, you brought up three things that require follow up, uh, not necessarily in the order of importance, but the order in which it strikes my mind. It was never the Democrats that created the biggest headwind I, I felt when we were in the House. Uh, it's kind of like a criminal defense attorney in a courtroom. You expect them to oppose you, and therefore you're not surprised. Um, it was the media. It was the media headwind that caught me by surprise. I just um, I figured they might lean a little bit left, but I thought that you know fairness and impartiality and calling balls and strikes would still be like kind of feigned, at least you know faked. I didn't even see it faked towards the end of my time there. Yeah. You mentioned the the press travels with you when they're secretary of state and they got no idea what you're doing when you're CIA director. And if they did, they wouldn't understand it. How significant was is the media headwind for a conservative or a Republican? I'm not prone to complaining and whining. Neither are you. It was a mess for those first two and a half years. The time between when President Trump took office and the first impeachment where the whole narrative, the, the everything, 24-7, every headline nearly was Trump is a Russian asset. Imagine you're the secretary of state or the CIA director, for that matter, traveling around the world, and the foreign leader says, you're going to be there tomorrow? Looks like your president's getting impeached. And we now know that the FBI, at least, and the media, almost certainly true, Adam Schiff in particular, knew this wasn't true. So this is to your point. I always I grew up having enormous respect for the media, not always agreeing with them, but thinking these are journalists trying to tell us what's going on in the world. That was not my experience for those first two and a half years. I watched them do things that were deeply counterfactual, being told it was counterfactual and still pushing this storyline was political. And that's un-American. It, it hurts our country. And it's not what journalists are supposed to do. And I pray that somehow they can find their way back not to being conservative, not to supporting uh, Mike Pompeo, but to getting it right for their readers and listeners. I'm not a big poll watcher, Mike, but some polls are kind of jarring and they catch your attention. Uh, there was one a couple of months ago where Americans were asked the biggest perceived threat to our country and the media was ranked number one. And, and I do wonder if at some point, you know, I can tell you, if I were ranked number one, I would do some self-reflection. <laughs> I would do some some self-analysis and figure out why people perceive me to be the greatest threat to our country. I don't see a whole lot of uh, self-analysis going on, even in the aftermath of polling that says neither side trust them anymore. So you're a diplomat. I'm not. I'm not going to get you to beat up on the media. You mentioned uh, Xi Jinping sitting across from him. Uh, he's in the news a little bit this week with a weather balloon. 
I guess. Now, he said it was a weather balloon. I don't know that it was. And then there are reports coming out that they've been doing it for a while. What's your reaction to that? What's your take on that? And is it possible with all the technology we have today that a country could be spying on us with a balloon and we may not know about it? Well, with respect to the last question, it seems exceedingly unlikely that you could fly a slow mover at 60,000 feet the size of three buses and we wouldn't know about it. Uh, it also seems unlikely that we could not figure out what it was you were trying to do from there. I'll be a little careful there. We failed to protect America in the moment, right? This balloon came in across the Aleutian Islands. It sounds like we could certainly have taken it down there. Don't know why the president decided not to do that. He'll have to explain that to the American people. Said it was because they're worried about debris fields. That doesn't strike me as on a risk-adjusted basis of them flying over our missile sites and the chance that a piece of debris will hit someone in a sparsely populated place like Montana or Kansas seems doesn't seem like they got the risk analysis right there. Uh, but more importantly, Trey, if you just step back, this is Xi Jinping testing, right? They're probing. They're trying to see how we'll respond. It's not only what they collect, the data or the images that they collect, but it's about thinking, well, what will America do? And goodness, if they won't, go after a balloon inside their own country. Are they going to do a darn thing to stop me from taking Taiwan? This is the calculus of someone like Xi Jinping. And I don't think we did well in representing how America will actually defend things that matter to it with this balloon incident. I uh, close with this. I've I've seen the stories that said this happened during the Trump administration. Uh, I can say one thing with certainty, and no one told me. <laughs> and so uh, I've now checked with my good friend, John Ratcliffe, and uh, I've seen Ambassador Bolton and Ambassador Bryan speak publicly. No one apparently told them either. So someone needs to fill us in on what actually took place there. Maybe the military knew and they didn't tell any of the senior political leaders. That seems far-fetched. Maybe we didn't catch it, but I'm confident the good people of Montana would have looked up in the sky and seen it if it had happened. So uh, it's unfortunate that President Biden wasn't more serious about protecting us because just as Xi Jinping today says this was a weather balloon, we should never forget he told us that this virus wouldn't transmit from human to human. He told us there was nothing to see here when millions of people across the world have now been killed. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't value human life, and we're going to have to confront that in a way that is far more serious than what President Biden's been prepared to do to date. All right. We had a general, I think he was an Air Force general, and then Mike McCall, that, who you yeah. served with in the House, both of whom seem to kind of give the impression that at least in their judgment, war with China was inevitable. That may be too strong of a word, but, you know, McCall said, I, you know, I hope not, but I think so. How do you, I mean, you mentioned the virus, you mentioned the balloons, you haven't mentioned TikTok, although you have a thousand times before, <laughs> you have all of these real affronts, and yet they're you know, the second most powerful country in the world. How do you have a relationship with them, given the conflict, competition, how, whatever word you want to use? Yeah. So the relationship is going to have to fundamentally change from what it's been for the last 20, 30, 40 years, Trey. Not because we want it to, but because Xi Jinping is forcing us to change it. Uh, and it won't be simple. It won't be just six months or a year. We'll, I pray, be bipartisan. shouldn't be political. They are trying to undermine the central pillars that have given us all this space to be America for the last 250 years. They, Xi Jinping wants our country to be more like theirs, a surveillance state with an authoritarian regime using the renminbi, uh, operating in a way where there aren't contracts. There's just the state's power, and we can't let that happen. 
Uh, we began in the Trump administration to get this right. We started that pushback to protect the American worker through trade arrangements, to protect our intellectual property, to kick their spies out of Houston, Texas, Trey, for goodness sake. They were running the largest spy operation in the history of America from the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas. And we knew it and didn't do a thing until we came along and closed the damn place down. These are the kinds of things we can do. A central idea for us was reciprocity. Uh, example, if they can buy farmland in America near an American military facility, well, we should be able to buy Chinese farmland near a Chinese military facility. I say that a bit jokingly, they're not going to let that happen. So we shouldn't either. When we begin to push back and demand that they conform to the norms that nations must conform to, I'm convinced we'll ultimately prevail. But it's going to be a big battle. They've been literally at economic war with us for 40 years, and we didn't do a darn thing about it. We're going to have to get serious about this. And I sadly, I've not seen any evidence that President Biden and his team are prepared to do that. I'm guessing that's why you subtitled your book to include the word fight, fighting for the America. Are there other examples of places where you wish, and I don't mean fighting literally, I mean, you wore the uniform, you did fight, but but maybe fighting literally. Are there other areas, spots around the world where you see a need for a dramatically different approach from current or even maybe recent American foreign policy? So I'll give you two, uh, one of which I've spoken about a great deal, the way we uh, have a relationship with the Middle East. Look, our, our goal should be we want to make sure energy flows freely and we don't have to send our, send our young kids to risk their lives and fight and potentially die in the Middle East. That's happened too often. Our view was we have one great partner in the nation of Israel. And we have an adversary in Iran, and we can make peace with Middle Eastern countries and have them make peace with Israel. That's what we did. It became the Abraham Accords, and we punished the Ayatollah. Uh, sadly, uh, this administration has gone back to play footsie with him. And goodness, the Iranians are now sending equipment to Russia to kill Ukrainian civilians. It's a dangerous policy for the United States of America. And we ought to go back to what we were doing. I'll give you one more example, and it's one that doesn't get as much attention. I'm worried about Mexico a great deal, Trey. Certainly the immigration issue, we've all talked about that. We kind of got it figured out. It took, it took us two and a half years to figure it out uh, with what became Remain in Mexico. But we now have ungoverned spaces on our southern border. We've never had that. We, we think about the Fatah in Pakistan and Afghanistan. We think about Africa where terrorists train. We see all these little video clips. Terrorists can now train on our southern border. Mexico is not in charge of a good piece of that real estate. And the difference between a cartel and a jihadist is pretty subtle at one level. We're going to have to demand that the Mexicans get control of this, or we will have terrorists launching efforts against our country from not 6,000 miles away in Afghanistan or Pakistan, but from 600 feet away in El Paso, Texas. More of my conversation with Secretary Mike Pompeo coming up. You mentioned Iran. I won't call any names, although you would recognize some of them. I think we still have American diplomats and American public servants that have security details because of threats from Iran. So to those of us that are not into diplomacy and not ever been at that high a level, how can you negotiate with a country that is actively trying to kill people from a previous administration? I, I, I really, I'm not being facetious. I don't yeah. understand how you do that. Yes. Well, Trey, this impacts me directly. It's become pretty public, th this threat. They have a million dollar bounty on my head, which my wife thinks is a little low, but you know, <laughs> uh, 
Look, it, it does create enormous confusion. And I'm trying to be as diplomatic as I know how to be to say, I'm going to sit across the table from an actor who is working inside the United States, not to only attack former government officials, but they've come after civilians as well. That fought was against folks who have just protested the Iranian regime. Doesn't make much sense to me, Trey. I can't figure out why this administration has continued down that path. I think it's a mistake because it not only puts the life of those individuals at risk, but it puts all of our security in a place that it need not be. All right. You're a busy guy. You wrote a book that has a lot of detail. There's policy, if you like that. There's uh, a little bit about yourself as much as uh, someone with humility would be willing to write about how you got where you are. Why this book? Why now? Look, it takes a lot of time to write a book. It, I, it, you know it. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of time. So cynics would say, well, he may run for president. People that know you better will say, yeah, he may, but that may not be the impetus for the book. It may just be, I want to memorialize what I witnessed. I don't want someone else to do it. That was really it, Trey. For the first year after we left office, I had determined not to write a book. <laughs> I just had too much going on, wanted to get back to the real world. And then I watched not only some of the other books, but to your point about the media narrative, telling stories about facts that I just knew weren't true, right? I was in the meeting, that didn't happen. And so I thought it, it, it both useful for the historical record and important to share with the American people, like how you can do this. Like we can keep America safe. It's hard work. It is, it, you don't, but we didn't get it right every day either. But there's a theory of the case here that actually can deliver without sending our kids all over the world to fight and die. And I wanted to tell that story. And I wanted to do it in a way that I thought was decent and reflected on the greatness of our country as well. And I, I don't know that I pulled that off, Trey, but I, I hope and pray that I did. Well, you must have. It is fabulously successful. And when I say successful, I don't mean people are buying it. People who read it, I give it very, very high marks. So you... I couldn't help but chuckle. You said that you waited a year after you left uh, to write a book. Uh, John Ratcliffe waited a year to read a book uh, after <laughs> he left. So there, the That's president choice. <laughs> hired very different people for uh, for very important positions. All right. I know you work and I'm retired. So I want you to do this for us. Okay. You've been, I don't know what that kid in California grew up dreaming he might possibly become. But I can't imagine that you have not at least met your own expectations, your parents, and probably most of your teachers. There's really only one job left, I, I would say, unless you want to be on the Supreme Court, and I don't think you do. There's only one job left, but it's a hard job to get. Been less than 50 people ever gotten it. So how do you decide what's next? Because you're young. You've got two or three careers left in you if you want it. So how do you decide what's best, what's next for the Pompeos? A hard question, Trey. Uh, we're, we're thinking our way through this. I did see the machine. I have a pretty good sense of the things we got right and the failures that we had in a White House that was complicated. Uh, so I, I've seen the beast at the State Department. I, I know the Justice Department needs a lot of work. I, I've seen these things. But in the end, you got to conclude that you're the right person. This is the right time. And Susan and I are thinking our way through it, praying, trying to figure that out. Uh, obviously, even if we think we are good folks, Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina will get to decide if we're right about that. And uh, we'll, we'll in the next handful of months work our way through it and then either end up with the lovely privilege to go out and meet with folks all across the country and make the case and let them sort it out. Or we'll get back to what it is we're doing today. 
All right, I'm asking a couple of what I hope are fun questions. So you take them as fun. The president, uh, you will not admit this, uh, but the people that were around y'all, uh, well, he talked about you differently from the way he talked about other people in his administration. I wasn't around him that often. Um, I never had to spend a moment defending Mike Pompeo. Uh, some of our other friends from time to time, you would have to defend. So that said, he is running. Have you put any thought into what his nickname for you might possibly be? Uh, we do. We have a pool and uh, you are welcome to throw your dollar in the hat with the name, your name on a tray. And we will select the winner when President Trump tells us what the answer is. If that comes. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll sit there and think whatever it is, he picked that person to be the head of the CIA and the secretary of state. So, Andrei, you know, him. that's not going to slow him down. Come on. I know it's not. <laughs> but is there any job you have not had? elected, appointed, private sector, that you would say, uh, that would be my dream job. I'm not talking about the presidency. Is there something, you know, for me is to be on the college, you know, playoff board to pick the playoff teams. I mean, I, I love sports. Is there something you just, the people would be surprised. Mike Pompeo really, really would like to do this. Oh, goodness. I haven't thought about that. I'm going to there, there's nothing really sitting out there that I think I should. That'd be really great to do what uh, what I am looking forward to. And I am told I'm not permitted to talk about is that I'm looking forward to being grandpa. Our son got married last summer to a lovely young lady named Rachel. And I just can't wait for that day. I hope the Lord blesses us with lots of grandkids. I do, too. All right. Kansas or Kansas State. What do you do when they play each other? Layup, layup, layup. Wichita State, go Shockers. <laughs> that, that was quick. <laughs> that was my wife's that, a Wichita State graduate. This is this is where we find ourselves. Okay. All uh, right. Last question for you: A book that you read that you think changed your life? Oh goodness! You know, I read The Fountainhead early on from Anrand. I read a lot of James Michener, sort of historical fiction works. A book called The Source. Uh, they're really interesting books and that piqued my curiosity about how it is we think about what comes after us. All right. Your publisher will not be happy with me asking this. Uh, I said final question. This really is final question. So apologies to your publisher, because <laughs> what they want people to know is that you have a book out right now. They don't right. want to think about the next book. But if Mike Pompeo were to write another book, would you write a spy thriller? Would you write a crime drama what 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 do you love writing enough to do it again and what would it be on i can't imagine going through that process again anytime soon but maybe maybe i will you know i've always my wife always gives me a hard time but i've always wanted to do stand-up trey so you know maybe you and i'll hit the trail we'll head out there and try and uh Try and make a make a living telling good stories. Well, there is a, a lady that watches my show that emails me um, almost uh, every Sunday night. Uh, you are her choice for um, whatever. Fill in the blank. And I got an email last night. I forwarded it to you because uh, I don't give out your private email. Well, I do for a fee, but this guy didn't <laughs> offer me any money. And he said the same thing. So I, I want you to know it's not just Kansas and it's not even people you've met. There are people that you've never met and probably will never meet that think extraordinarily highly of you. And for good reason. Uh, those of us that know you know why they do. But I want you to be encouraged, at least by the fact that there are people across the country that don't have access to you. So they email me in hopes that I will tell you what huge fans they are 
of yours. So thank you for your service to our country in every way that it has manifested itself. I want you to come to South Carolina a lot, spend a lot of money, stay for a long time, and thank you for everything you have done for our country. Bless you, Trey. Thank you. All right. Mike Pompeo, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for joining us. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.